Imagine a coal engine on a train. Now imagine that the workers suddenly start inputting more coal into the engine at a faster rate. The engine of the train would be working harder than usual and outputting a lot more energy into the train. This may initially seem like a good thing, but it could lead to some troubling consequences. For example, the temperature of the train may become uncomfortably warm. The increased coal usage would result in more waste being produced. Furthermore, the speed at which the train is moving may cause it to become unsteady and shake. These changes may even cause the train to derail. Ultimately, there could be many negative impacts across the entire train due to the overworked engine. This would also be true of human bodies. Think of the thyroid as the engine. It is essential to many different functions across the entire body. Like the train, our bodies are not equipped to function at such a high pace at all times. This is the problem when a patient has hyperthyroidism. And today, your patient has hyperthyroidism and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled Body on Fire, an approach to hyperthyroidism. All right, time for a minute physiology. The thyroid gland is a butterfly-shaped organ that sits along the interior aspect of the tracheal rings inferior to the larynx. It exists as part of a signaling cascade with the hypothalamus and the anterior pituitary gland, which are located in the brain. The hypothalamus is able to detect whether there are high or low levels of thyroid hormones circulating in the blood. When the levels are low, the hypothalamus is stimulated to secrete TRH, or thyrotropin-releasing hormone. TRH then reaches the anterior pituitary gland via the hypophysial portal system, which is a network of capillaries. TRH stimulates the anterior pituitary gland to secrete TSH, or thyroid-stimulating hormone, also known as thyrotropin, which then enters the systemic circulation in order to reach the thyroid gland, where it binds to and stimulates TSH receptors. The thyroid gland contains follicular cells that are filled with thyroglobulin. Upon stimulation of the TSH receptors, these follicular cells form the two thyroid hormones using iodine, T3 and T4. These hormones are then released into the systemic circulation, where they are transported freely as well as by binding to plasma proteins. The hormones themselves are lipophilic and so are able to diffuse across the cell membrane and into the nucleus of the cell. Intracellularly, T4 is converted to the more metabolically active T3. The action of T3 increases the metabolic rate of cells, so that more proteins are formed and more energy is used. T3 increases the cardiac output, increases bone reabsorption, and stimulates the sympathetic nervous system. The presence of thyroid hormones in the peripheral circulation will then feed back to the hypothalamus in order to regulate the amount of circulating thyroid hormones. Sometimes this feedback mechanism may not function properly, resulting in overproduction or underproduction of thyroid hormone. Thyrotoxicosis is the clinical state that patients present with when there's excess thyroid hormone. Hyperthyroidism specifically refers to the presence of this state due to overproduction of thyroid hormones from the thyroid gland. The overproduction of thyroid hormones can occur for a variety of reasons. In Graves' disease, for example, IgG antibodies are formed that act to stimulate the TSH receptors on the thyroid gland. 
In other cases, there may be an extrathyroidal mass that is productive of either TSH or thyroid hormone. Alright, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. Thyrotoxicosis may present with a variety of symptoms as the effects of T3 can impact all organ systems. Some common symptoms include anxiety, diaphoresis, insomnia, irritability, heat intolerance, fatigue, hair loss, frequent bowel movements, menstrual irregularities, tremor, double vision, and proximal muscle weakness. Patients may also present with arrhythmias, hypertension, osteoporosis, or weight loss. Hyperthyroidism should be considered in all patients that present with a constellation of these symptoms. In an acute setting, a thyroid storm needs to be considered and managed appropriately if the patient presents with a constellation of the symptoms noted above. Now, we're going to take a small detour here and talk about the diagnosis and management of thyroid storm, as it is an important clinical presentation that requires urgent management. We'll discuss routine treatment of hyperthyroidism later in this episode. Now, thyroid storm is a state of decompensated thyroid toxicosis, and patients can present quite unstably. Thyroid storm can be diagnosed clinically using the Birch-Wartowski point scale, a scoring system which uses the following criteria, thermal regulatory dysfunction, tachycardia, atrial fibrillation, congestive heart failure, gastrointestinal hepatic dysfunction, CNS disturbances, and a precipitant history. A score greater than 45 indicates thyroid storm, and a score from 25 to 44 suggests an impending storm. In assessing a patient with thyroid storm, always start with the patient's ABCs. These patients require continuous cardiac monitoring for possible arrhythmias. Treatment with antithyroid drugs such as propylthiouracil or methimazole, beta blockers, iodine, and hydrocortisone are the main components of treatment. Propylthiouracil or PTU and methimazole are antithyroid hormones and work to block hormone synthesis. Propanolol is the preferred beta blocker in this setting for its ability to inhibit T4 to T3 conversion at higher doses, in addition to its effect as a cardiac agent. Iodine solution should be given one hour after administration of antithyroid medications, as it will block hormone synthesis and then release once it cannot be used as a substrate for new hormone synthesis. All right, now that the patient has been stabilized, you can then continue your workup. On history, you should ask about skin changes, including sweating, onycholysis, hyperpigmentation, alopecia, or hair thinning. An assessment should also include checking for any heat intolerance, irritability, insomnia, muscle aches, palpitations, and tremors. A review of systems should include asking about frequent bowel movements, new rash, especially on the shins, as well as menstrual irregularities in women. An astute practitioner should also evaluate for evidence of Graves' orbitopathy by asking about double vision or even asking family members of a possible thyroid stare. On physical exam, general inspection should be completed to assess for signs of heat intolerance through the appropriateness of clothing for the temperature, diaphoresis, and restlessness. 
The patient's vitals should also be assessed for tachycardia, hypertension, as well as any pulse irregularity. A full thyroid exam should also be conducted, with specific focus on examining for the presence of goiter, as well as any appreciable thyroid nodules. Lid leg is a physical exam finding that is suggestive of Graves orbitopathy. Brisk reflexes may also be elicited in these patients. You should also check for pretibial myxedema, which is a characteristic skin change usually seen on the interior aspect of the lower legs. Now, on to our workup. The workup for hyperthyroidism must include TSH, T3, and T4. Hyperthyroidism is characterized by elevated levels of T3 and T4, as well as the suppressed TSH level. Further workup should include a measurement of thyroid receptor antibodies, also known as TRAB, as a positive result would be more suggestive of Graves' disease. A radioactive iodine scan should also be done in order to assess for any hot nodules. If the scan shows concentrated uptake of iodine in certain areas of the thyroid, it may be indicative of an overactive nodule that might be amenable to targeted therapy. Graves' disease will present as diffuse increased uptake on a radioactive iodine uptake scan. Now, you may also find a patient with subclinical hyperthyroidism in your initial workup. Subclinical hyperthyroidism refers to a suppressed TSH with normal T3 and T4 levels. An individualized approach to treatment should be taken for these patients. However, in most cases, patients that have TSH levels less than 0.1, those that are over the age of 65, and those that are symptomatic are usually offered treatment. The differential diagnosis for hyperthyroidism includes Graves' disease, an autoimmune condition in which antibodies are created that act on TSH receptors at the level of the thyroid gland to stimulate thyroid hormone production. Graves' disease is the most common cause of hyperthyroidism. Other possible diagnoses include toxic adenoma or toxic multinodular goiter, which are conditions in which patients have focal overproduction in their thyroid due to overactive nodules. Ectopic thyroid hormone-producing masses can also have a similar effect. An example of this is struma ovarii, which is a type of ovarian tumor composed of thyroid tissue. If the TSH is high or inappropriately normal, a TSH-producing adenoma may be the offending cause of hyperthyroidism. Inflammation or destruction of the thyroid gland can result in a dumping of thyroid hormones into the bloodstream and thus thyrotoxicosis. For example, thyroiditis can occur after radiation, viral illness, or in the postpartum setting. Another consideration is iatrogenic hyperthyroidism, which can occur in patients that are taking amiodarone or excessive amounts of iodine. Furthermore, exogenous thyroid consumption can occur intentionally or unintentionally in patients taking medications like levothyroxine or thyroidal supplements. In summary, our differential diagnosis for hyperthyroidism includes Graves' disease, toxic adenoma, toxic multinodular goiter, struma ovaria, TSH-producing adenoma, thyroiditis, amiodarone-induced hyperthyroidism, and exogenous thyroid hormone consumption.
Let's talk about treatment. Treatment considerations in hyperthyroidism include antithyroid medications, radioactive iodine, and surgery. Aside from definitive treatment with these means, most patients will also require an aspect of symptomatic control, generally with beta blockers. As mentioned earlier, propanolol remains the preferred beta blocker in this setting. Antithyroid medications include PTU and methimazole. The latter is preferred in most cases, but the former is preferred by some in the first trimester of pregnancy. It is important to note that both medications have been shown to have teratogenic effects, and women that are or may become pregnant must be counseled about these risks. The main side effects that patients need to be informed about with regard to these medications are hepatic injury and agranulocytosis. Patients on treatment should have their TSH monitored every six to eight weeks in order to assess the response and to monitor for hypothyroidism. Radioactive iodine can be considered in certain patients after pretreatment with antithyroid medications, but should not be used in those with moderate to severe Graves' orbitopathy, as it confers a compounded risk of worsening disease. If the patient has Graves' orbitopathy, it is also important to counsel about smoking cessation, as smoking has been shown to worsen Graves' orbitopathy. Radioactive iodine is also contraindicated in women that are pregnant or lactating. Radioactive iodine is localized to the thyroid gland after oral administration and works by causing ablation of the gland over 6 to 18 weeks. Due to the radioactivity of the treatment, patients should be counseled to isolate from family members following treatment. Lastly, Surgical management usually includes either a total or subtotal thyroidectomy. Patients that undergo thyroidectomy will eventually require thyroid hormone replacement. Surgical intervention often impacts parathyroid function as well, and as a result, these patients should be treated perioperatively with calcium and vitamin D. Antithyroid medications, radioactive iodine, and surgery are the tenets of management for most causes of hyperthyroidism. Your first-line option will vary depending on the specific cause of hyperthyroidism, as well as the patient's values and preferences. For example, surgical excision would be preferred in patients that have overactive masses, such as stroma ovarii or TSH-producing adenomas. Antithyroid medications, such as PTU or methimazole, may be the preferred initial management in Graves' disease, as there is a possibility of remission and therefore it may be possible to avoid iatrogenic hypothyroidism from ablation or surgery. It is important to note that thyroiditis is usually a transient condition that does not require specific treatment, but patients may still benefit from symptomatic management with a beta blocker until it resolves. All right, time for a medicine minute. When you think about bile acid sequestrants, chances are you probably don't think about the thyroid gland. Bile acid sequestrants like cholestyramine are usually used in the treatment of dyslipidemia or cholestasis. Interestingly, they can also be used with good effect as part of treatment for hyperthyroidism. A double-blind placebo-controlled RCT conducted in 2008 assessed the efficacy of cholestyramine at two doses in patients with Graves' disease. The study included 45 patients that were treated with propanolol and methimazole, as well as some that were randomized to also be treated with cholestyramine. Serum levels of T3 and T4 in these patients were measured over four weeks. It was found that the levels of thyroid hormone were decreased to a greater extent and at a faster rate in patients with cholestyramine. Cholestyramine helps hyperthyroid patients achieve a euthyroid state 
through its effect on the enterohepatic metabolism of thyroid hormones. Under normal conditions, thyroid hormones are broken down in the liver, and the metabolites are incorporated into bile and then secreted into the intestines before being reabsorbed into the circulation. Bile acid sequestrants prevent the reabsorption, so more thyroid hormone is excreted in the stool. Therefore, one can consider cholestyramine as an adjuvant treatment in managing thyrotoxicosis due to its ability to increase thyroid hormone clearance. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Body on Fire, Approach to Hyperthyroidism. This episode was written by Dr. Tanisha Burke, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Alessia Zola, endocrinologist, and Dr. Florence Moriello, general internist and intensivist. This episode was recorded and produced by Allison Lai. The Internetwork series was created by Allison Lai and is executively produced by Zara Morali, Leah Karanopoulos, and myself. Theme song by Lakshman Vizantha Mohan. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. As always, we have an associated infographic and extra resources on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.